Each and every day, across the country, there are thousands of incredible Centria technicians and clinicians providing ABA therapy to individuals with autism. And this show is about telling their stories and the stories of our tireless staff that support this powerful mission. I'm your host, Timothy Yeager, and this is the Do Wonders Podcast. Thank you everyone for joining me today. I'm so excited about introducing you to Julia Petrowski, a behavior technician in our Pacific Northwest market. She's also a practicum student um, working towards getting her master's degree in applied behavior analysis. And I think it's clear and, and quite evident how passionate she is about the work she does in serving the great mission of Centria Autism. Well, thank you for joining me, Julia. I am so excited to have you here. Um, I think it's really important that uh, the voices of all of our staff are heard, and I'm really excited to, to get to know you and the role that you have at Centria. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little about yourself, um, what you do for Centria, and how long you've been doing it. Um, so I actually, just this coming week, I'll be with Centria for three years. Um, I am a BT, so I'm a behavior technician. Um, when we were doing more of the senior tech thing, I was working as a senior technician. Um, and then I'm also a practicum student. Three years. And so when did you become yeah. a practicum student? Um, about like April of this year. So I've been in it for a few months now. Awesome. So you've been with Century for three years. What, three years, start, yeah. what started you down this line of work? Um, actually, when I was a teenager, I started working in um, like youth sports. And so I started working with uh, a lot of the kids that had um, different levels of need if they had autism, regardless, um, on those teams. And then I just kind of evolved from there. When I moved to Oregon, there's a lot of ABA jobs open. And so I found Centria and decided to try it out and I've stuck with it. So I like it. That's awesome. Do you have a story about a client that may have impacted you in a, in a meaningful way? I mean, I have I many stories. Um, the clients are always, you know, really impactful. And I think a lot of times they tend to impact us more than we always feel like we're impacting um, through sure. our therapy and stuff. Um, I have one client uh, that actually he graduated. Um, I started with him. I was his first person and I was with him all the way till the end. That's probably one of the most impactful cases I've been on um, because I saw how um, contrasting his behavior was at the end of ABA versus at the beginning. Um, so I got to go through that whole phase with him. And it was really, really cool to see how it changed not just his life, but his family's life um, and everything that went along with just daily living tasks up to big tasks that they never thought he was going to be able to do. How does it make you feel when you think about that? It's exciting to me. Um, it can be nerve wracking because you never know, you know, if those skills are going to continue. So it's definitely exciting. Um, the pride is more, you know, it's more proud of him than it is about me. I feel more proud of what the client was able to do and what they were able to accomplish and fortunate to have been able to be a part of the process with him. Yeah. I've, I've been part of those stories and um, I was a technician at one time oh, okay. and um, yeah, it, it's good to have those stories because there's also some tough days. Definitely. Definitely hard days. Yes. Yeah. 
What's a great day look like for you? A great day, I think, would be um, when a client maybe makes a new milestone, like they reach a new milestone. Maybe they have a day where they practiced a new skill in a new way, or I saw that they generalized something by themselves for the first time. Um, A lot of the good days are just days where maybe we reach something that we've really been working hard to get to. But even just a day where skills just maintain and we just have like low rates of behavior, or even if there was a behavior, maybe they used a coping skill. Usually those days when I see like a really important skill being used or something we've been working really hard on finally breakthrough for a kid. What's one thing that most people don't know about you? I think that um, under the surface it is very difficult to maintain my patience. So a lot of times when I'm, I work in the clinic in Beaverton um, out in Oregon. And a lot of times when I'm working with different technicians, especially overlaps and things like that, I'll get the question of like, how does this not make you mad? Or like, how are you not, you know, getting angry? Why are you being so patient about it? And under the surface, certain behaviors really can get to you. Um, so it's, it's work to be patient, I think is a big thing that, um, especially new technicians coming in, it helps to know, like, even if the most calm person is still probably irked under the surface by something. That's such a great skill to have that I don't have yet. Like, <laughs> even to this day, people know my what I'm feeling by just looking at my face. My face cannot hide it back. Um, it's definitely hard. It's something yeah. to practice. You know, th- that makes me think of when I was a technician. Um, I, I'm not proud to say, but my first job, I quit within three weeks as a technician. Oh, wow. I actually hated I mean, it. Some cases are tough. It was cases and it was like, I wasn't really trained and Mm. I didn't really realize that I wasn't trained well. I just thought like this client was just too hard. And, Mm. um, I could remember feeling that like, you know, I think later in life I I learned that it was like helplessness, right? I I just didn't have the tools to help and I wasn't supported, but how easy that helplessness can turn into like frustration and exactly right. a, A measure of who you are as a technician. And that's, Right. So not the case, right? Um, Definitely. Some of our technicians are put in some really difficult jobs. You guys, you guys have the hardest job on, you know, in our organization and um, right. stress is a huge part of that at times, I'm sure. Definitely. And just, I, I think that um, balance of, you know, you're there to teach a child, you're there to shape their behavior, you're there to support them, but you also need to make sure you're supporting yourself and taking care of yourself Um, and that's been a skill that I've been working on recently of like putting a line down, you know, when I'm getting frustrated, taking a break. Um, because like you were saying, you know, a lot of there's that automatic, um, connotation, I think to a person that if they get frustrated, then they're maybe they're not good at it or they weren't, you know, given the right case or whatever it was versus, you know, we're, we're all human. We're all going to get frustrated. So taking those breaks to take care of myself helps me be a better technician. So true. Self-care is so incredibly important. Very important. As someone who's been in this job and uh, um, we have other technicians listening to this Mm -hmm. podcast, um, what's some advice that you have for them on on how to, you know, um, take care of themselves during a job as stressful as yours? For me, I think if possible, the best tool I found is a sense of humor, you know, being able to laugh at things. Obviously, you're not laughing at your client or making fun of what's happening, but being able to kind of joke about the situation or to be able to have a sense of humor when you go home at the end of the day or something um, that's helped me kind of process or accept some of the really difficult situations that I've been in or really difficult behaviors we've had to handle. Um, But also just taking breaks, you know, accepting help um, 
when it's offered or asking for help when you need it. That's a huge thing because as a technician myself, I've oftentimes um, felt like if I asked for help, it meant that I wasn't able to handle this behavior or I didn't have the skill set or whatever it was. Um, And maybe in those situations that was true, but that didn't mean I was bad at my job. So asking for help is a super big thing that I think we all should work as a team, especially when you have those clinic environments. Such a great point. I would even say, even when you're in home cases and, and yeah, definitely you, know, like you I, our technicians, I'm sure often feel alone out there in the homes when they're working with Absolutely. clients. Right. And yeah. how to reach out for help is such an important piece. Right. Um, well, and I mean, if it's texting your BCBA or if it's, I've even asked parents like, Hey, can you watch, you know, for a minute so I can take a break. Um, luckily I've had understanding families that they know their, their kids' behavior is intense. They know if their child was aggressing on me for 20 minutes, I might need a minute to like get some water or something, you know, um, so even asking mom, like, Hey, can you step in? Because, you know, that, that balance of being a technician versus, um, watching a child or being a caretaker is a thin line. So asking parents for help even is important. I like that. I like that a lot. I think that's a really good point. I think that's for anyone listening. If, if you don't know how to handle a situation or what to do in your job, mm-hmm. asking for help as a, yeah. as a behavior analyst, as a behavior analyst myself, asking for help is not a measure of you. It's a measure right. of the environment. It's a measure of the fact that you haven't received the exactly. support that you need and right. you shouldn't take it personal. Yeah. yeah. Or that, you know, there's always going to be something you don't know, you know, and that's okay. Yeah, for sure. I, I've been in the field for 12 years now and there are many clients that I come in contact with and I'm like, I'm not really sure how to start this, you know, right, um, right. or what's needed. I know how to start it, but what's needed is uh, another yeah. question in itself. And it can be All daunting. Right, so, you meet a kid. <laughs> for sure. So here's the exciting thing for me. So you've been at mm-hmm. Century for three years. You're now a practicum student, which means mm-hmm. that you're deciding to, to pursue this as a career. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what was that like for you? Like, what was, was there a moment that you, you know, decided that this is the path that you wanted to go down? Um, you know, how did you, how'd you come to this, this decision? It came pretty naturally to me just because the information, the skills, the different things were like, it just made sense. Um, so different BCBAs I would work with, they would uh, mention, you know, you should think about going to school for this, or you should think about pursuing this as a career. Um, and the more that I got, kind of an inside look at what a BCBA does, what the the scope they can reach. And specifically one of my clinicians, they told me that I would be able to reach so many more kids if I was a BCBA versus of being a technician, even though I'm getting to have that one-on-one relationship. There's only so many hours in the day, you know, so you might be able to reach two kids or three kids. But if you're a BCBA, you can reach 15 kids, you know, and you can switch off and and you can teach other technicians to be better at certain skills or to um, develop skills in this way or how to approach a behavior this way. And then they can be, you know, more skilled in what they're doing. So I think the idea that I could have a wider reach in a different position, but still be able to do the same thing was kind of what eventually clicked for me. That's so awesome. Um, I can definitely relate in that area. I, I started as a BT, like I said, and then initially wanted to become a school psychologist, but Mm. uh, decided to go down the route of becoming a behavior analyst. And uh, mm. I'm so excited that I did. So uh, last question, um, mm-hmm. what's your why? Like what motive, what drives you and motivates you to keep pushing forward? So I, I think it's keeping in mind 
how wide these skills could, you know, expand a kid's skill set or they're just their abilities overall. So I try to not focus, I guess, on the small picture all the time, but focus on the big picture. So when I come in and they say, okay, you're going to teach this kid this, this, and this program, I can kind of look at that as like, what is the wider scope that that could affect that kid's life? Um, And so I keep coming in every day because I know why I'm teaching this. Why am I going through this? Why we're working on this? Because eventually this kid will have this skill set. Because of the work that I've done over time, I've seen the kids that weren't taught those skills. Um, And I've seen them evolve into adults and into, um, I've worked with people of all ages. So people in their seventies that maybe if they had gotten this intervention earlier, you know, their life would have gone a different route or they would have had a different skill set at their age now. Um, so it's helped to kind of keep that really big picture in mind of maybe this kid is four right now and I'm teaching them something that seems really, really small and it might be frustrating. Maybe they were having a hard time teaching it, but in comparison to what their life could be like without that skill, this could really change things for them in a really big way and have a wide reaching effect for them. And that's so powerful. And so that's a great perspective. The work that we do is exponential in its growth, right? So mm-hmm. one skill set begets another skill set, which begets another skill set, but that grows in an exponential way. And, and you know that, that ripple effect can have, will have lasting impact. Right. Right. So that kind of speaks to the topic of this week, actually. So mm-hmm. um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about you and our audience about mm-hmm. our science. And um, it may surprise others, I'm sure not you, but mm-hmm. others that our science isn't just about autism. It's, right. you know, ABA is not a set of tools. It actually has a lot of depth um, to it. Mm-hmm. And so there are three branches of the science of behavior analysis. Did you know that? I guess I didn't. I didn't know there was three branches. No. Yeah. So um, there's behaviorism and that's the philosophy of the science behind it. There's the experimental analysis of behavior. And Mm -hmm. so that's kind of like more basic research, like our animal labs Mm -hmm. and a lot of the research where our science was founded. And then there's applied behavior analysis and that's the application of behavior analysis. But I kind of want to talk about behaviorism. I'm kind of a Mm -hmm. little, I don't know, kind of a geek in this way. So here's a question for you. When you think Mm -hmm. about our field, what's a big name that comes to mind? Skinner. Skinner. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So Skinner is kind of our godfather, right? He's the founder in a lot of ways of our science. He went through a pretty significant transformation um, in his beliefs. Early in his career, he was actually what's called a methodological behaviorist. Um, Have you heard of John Watson? Yeah. Yeah. So... Part of, part of the shortcomings of our science too is intro to psych classes. Anyone who takes an intro mm-hmm. to psych class, they learn about behaviorism and they typically learn about behaviorism pre-functional um, behaviorism or radical behaviorism. They, they right. think about John Watson and John Watson would like, you know, make a loud noise in front of a baby and the baby would get scared, right? right. right? And all these different like stimulus and responses. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was like, he was an SR psychologist and Skinner was actually an SR psychologist prior now that was his views it's actually in line with something called logical positivism but he actually moved to a pragmatic view of science and uh, our radical behaviorism or some people may call themselves functional contextualist is more pragmatic and pragmatic is we do what works right right so um we twist the doorknob because that works and the door opens right uh, 
whatever we do has a lawful explanation because it's based off the consequences. Um, and that was right. a big shift for Skinner. And oddly is a big shift for, for our just understanding of human behavior, which I think to us makes complete sense, right? Like we do mm -hmm. based on what the consequences are, but back then right. that was kind of novel. And so if we have this pragmatic view, pragmatic view of like science and, and the work that we do, um, we can talk about that, how, what you do with kids, right? So mm -hmm. our science at its core is about manipulating the environment, right? So you shift things that happen before behavior occurs, which are antecedents. You mm -hmm. shift things and do things after behavior, which is consequences. And the work that we do is all about identifying what do we want to work for our client and what do we not want to work for our client, right? right. So if a kid is biting you every time they want to play with a toy, that's worked for them in the environment previously. Mm -hmm. That's why they do it. They're not bad kids. Right. There's nothing wrong with them. They just have this history of that's worked. That's pragmatism. So our goal is we don't want that to work anymore. We want something else to work, right? So we want to give them a word or a gesture or mm -hmm. something and say, this is what's going to work for you now. And that's really important because uh, if we want our clients to be successful in the community at large, we have to identify those behaviors that will be socially significant right. in that community. So let's talk about one of your clients. What are some programs that you're working on? Um, so for my client today, actually, we worked a lot on food tolerance. That's a big one that we're working on. Um, so tolerating new foods, accepting new foods, and then also turning them down in an appropriate way. So is there a way in which, is there a way in which his clients turned down food previously that was not appropriate? So right now they're kind of repertoire, I guess, for turning yeah. down behavior or turning down the food is like screaming, um, various aggression, like scratching, biting, hitting, um, and mostly just like tantruming, a lot of screaming, crying, um, whining. That's what their go-to behavior. He's four. He's four. Yeah. So I have a, mm -hmm. I have a almost three-year-old and mm -hmm. I have a 10-year-old as well and a one-year-old, but uh, my three-year-old does a lot of similar things. And so we want to talk about that a little bit, like talk about the experiences of a family, right? Right. They want to take their kid out, maybe not in this COVID life, but when, you know, prior to COVID and post COVID, yeah. you want to go out to a restaurant, you want to enjoy right. a nice dinner with your family. And that happens, right? So a client yep. just starts screaming or throwing things and making a scene. Um, all of a sudden, that's not an enjoyable experience for the family. Right. A lot of families of children with autism, you know, talk about shame and judgment that occurs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when you're looking at, you know, the work that we do, it's not just for the clients that we're working, it's for the families as yep. well. And so, um, and the amount of effort that a client has to go through to like, emit all those behavior, right. right? Just to say, instead of saying like, I don't yeah. want that or no, thank you. Right. right. Well, he usually falls asleep on the big days when we're going home, he falls asleep in the car because it was so much effort for him to do all of those things um, versus just, yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And so then our work from a pragmatic perspective is like, we don't want those screamings and you know, whatever right. the behavior is to occur. What we want to work for him is, some type of, you know, more passive way to like state that they don't yeah. want it, right? 
Right. Or a socially appropriate way, you know, because um, the scenario you're talking about is one that the families reported many times that they try to go to restaurants and they end up having to leave because they're so embarrassed or um, another patron in the restaurant made a comment to them or the waitress made a comment to them about them being bad parents because the kid didn't want to eat. And it's not the kid's fault. <laughs> it's not the parent's fault. And the people in the restaurant, it's, I mean, it's frustrating, of course, but it's nobody's fault that this is happening. So then the family feels like they don't even want to go out. So that's kind of why we're approaching this is to teach yep. him a way that the family could still go out and still enjoy these things. And he'll also enjoy them with his family. For sure. The term is called interlocking contingencies, right? So it's not just the behavior of the client, the behavior of the client then becomes right. a positive punisher to the behavior of the family of going out to dinner. Right. And so right. then you have these families that in turn often seclude themselves. And mm-hmm. you know, I've worked with a lot of families who just didn't want to go out at all. Right. And so, yeah. And then unfortunately what I've seen is the behavior gets worse because they're sitting at home and they're just kind of maybe um, reinforcing the behavior without knowing it because they don't want it to happen again. Our families sure. that live in apartments, you know, a lot of that is yep. avoiding the scream because you don't want the neighbors to hear, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I love that story and I appreciate you sharing that because I really just wanted to you know, speak to our larger audience about how what we're doing in this, in our fields is pretty technical. And there's a lot of, you know, discrete types of skills that we're learning, but in the large scope, um, from a pragmatic perspective, we're trying to arrange environments to select out the behaviors that we want to work in a socially appropriate way to a large community of people. And I think that uh, that has value for children with autism, that has value for, you know, technicians and clinicians and just people that work here. It's a very similar thing Like for us to thrive in an environment, in a community, you know, we have to emit the behavior that, that works in that community. So um, thank you for sharing the stories. Thank you for joining me and, and taking the risk of telling your story to, to our audience. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I appreciate the work you do. Yeah. And I hope yeah, to hear more from me. you. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank we'll you. Take care. All right. Thank you. And that concludes another episode of us telling the stories of our incredible staff and their work to support our powerful mission. Until next week, do wonders. Do wonders.